Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each of us. Peace be with you. Friends, our wonderful readings for the second Sunday of Easter speak to us of three of the apostles of Jesus, three pillars of the church, namely Peter, John, and Thomas. Now, each one functions, I'll argue, as an archetype for an essential feature of the life of the church. So somehow these figures symbolize a dimension of the church that's um, present up and down the ages. So let's look first at Peter. The one who just days before had been cowardly, vacillating, afraid even to admit that he knew Jesus, is now, we hear, clearly the leader of the church, admired by both believers and non-believers. And what's he up to? as we read now in the Acts of the Apostles. Well, we hear that he's working signs and wonders among the people. In fact, so convinced were they of Peter's miraculous power that they placed the sick in his path so that even his shadow might pass over them. We hear that people brought the sick from all over the region, as well as those troubled by unclean spirits, and that all of them were cured. Now, I fully realize that today we might be a bit skeptical of all this miraculous carrying on. But, you know, it's hard to deny that Jesus was certainly known as a healer and a miracle worker. And there's abundant evidence that the performance of miracles was a major reason why the first preachers were taken seriously. See, think about that for a second. You see it in Paul as well. That Here these figures show up and they start talking about Jesus and his, and his life and his resurrection from the dead. And I mean, what led people to believe them at first? And I think, and again, you see in Paul, I think it's very plausible to say that it was the miraculous power that came forth from them that led people to say, I think I'll give this a, a listen. You see it too, by the way, in the stories of the great missionaries up and down the centuries, when they first go into a region that doesn't know Christianity. And see, wouldn't that seem to make sense in God's providence that to, to give these first preachers a credibility that God would work miraculously through them? So I think it's true in the life of Jesus, certainly, and I think it's true rather clearly in the lives of these first uh, preachers. But here's the point I'm, I'm making. Peter is functioning here, I think, as a symbol of the apostolic dimension of the church up and down the centuries. What I mean is it's outreach in service to those in need, especially the sick. Think of um, Pope Francis here, you know, with his tremendous emphasis on mercy and going to the margins. Well, that's a classic standard dimension of the church's life. Now, the church customarily has done this kind of work, not through miracle workers, though there are miracle workers. I want to emphasize that. 
You can find them in every stage of the church's life, including today. Including today. You doubt me, read uh, Craig Keener's great book on miracles. But customarily, the church has done this kind of work. How? Through its hospitals and clinics, through great figures such as you know, John of God and Catherine of Siena, Mother Teresa of Calcutta in our day. But also, I would insist, through its sacraments, which heal sin-sick souls. I mean, so sickness is not just a matter of the body. It can be a matter of the mind and the heart and the soul. And the sacraments heal at that level. Well, see, all of this is what I'm calling the apostolic dimension of the church's life. And without it, it wouldn't be the church. Parishes, parish priests, missionaries, servants of the poor and sick, the whole apostolic life of the church is represented by St. Peter as he moves in this healing way among the people. Okay, let's turn then to the second reading from the book of Revelation. And here we get the figure of St. John. St. John, right, the beloved disciple. During the lifetime of Jesus, John was the one, we hear, whom the Lord especially loved. He loved all his disciples, but, you know, he, he loved John especially. John leaned on the breast of the Lord at the Last Supper. What's he doing there? Well, the, the great tradition says he was listening to the Lord's heart. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? He's listening to the Lord's heart. He's attentive to what's going on inside of Jesus. Moreover, John stood by the cross when everybody else, all the other disciples, had fled. Something awful in there about that image. Those who were closest to him, as we claim to be, we followers of Jesus, were close to him. But at the time of danger, they all fled. Except for John, except for John, still listening to the heart of the Lord. I love how in the Gospel of John, we hear that John and Peter are, are racing to the tomb when they get a, a hint of the resurrection. But John outraced him. He was younger, more energetic, and he got there first. So he's the first one of the apostles to profess his faith in the resurrection. Okay. So the second reading, as I mentioned, taken from the marvelous book of Revelation, from which we'll be reading, by the way, throughout the Easter season. It's always a great time to get back in to that pivotal book in the Bible. But we hear that the elder John, so the John of the Gospels is a young man. How maybe, I don't know, maybe even under 20. But now we hear of the elder John living in contemplative exile on the island of Patmos. Still, by the way, kind of a spiritually charged place. And he's taken up in ecstasy and given a vision of the heavenly temple. And so much of the book of Revelation follows from that. Well, John is standing here now. Here's my point for the contemplative dimension of the church. So Peter is the apostolic dimension, the church reaching out in service. But the contemplative dimension is just as important. Think of the life that's lived by monks and nuns and visionaries and liturgists across the centuries. All those who are attuned to the mystical realm. All those who have been granted, if you want, a vision of the heavenly temple. If we take this life away, and there are some people in the church who want to do that, you know, to reduce the church to its um, social service dimension. But if we do that, what happens? The church will devolve 
into, you know, more or less a, a kind of society of do-gooders that will be like, uh, as the Pope says, a, a sort of NGO. You know, will this be a social service organization? And notice, please, how the greatest of our apostolic figures up and down the centuries, think of St. Lawrence, think of St. Francis, Dorothy Day, Mother Teresa, Elizabeth of Hungary, Francis Xavier, we go on and on. But the greatest of these apostolic figures were profoundly rooted in this contemplative dimension, in the Mass, in the Eucharist, in the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, in retreats, in contemplative prayer, in the monastic life. See, all this participates in, in this Johannine dimension of the church, this John dimension. It's what John Henry Newman, one of my great heroes, called the priestly aspect of the church. See, and here's a, a kind of cri de coeur of mine, a, a sort of complaint, is that after Vatican II, the church that I came of age in, there was a great and indeed almost exclusive stress placed on the apostolic or ministerial side of the church. See, and that wasn't good. It's not, not to gainsay for a second what I said about, about Peter, but a one-sided stress on that, that you know, really to be the church is to be out with the poor, and really to be the church is to you know, be of apostolic service and so on. But if that's all there is, then we devolve into something less than we should be. I would say rather the apostolic work has got to be grounded in, essentially tied to this priestly or spiritual or contemplative dimension that's symbolized by John. Okay? And then finally in the gospel, in our third reading, we see the figure of Thomas, the apostle. What is it about him that makes him so attractive to Christians up and down the ages? Well, I think it's because he expresses what so many of us feel uh, so much of the time, which is, you know, skeptical, doubtful, just not sure about all this religion business. Thomas is, is hard-headed. He's the, the ancient Palestinian version of the state of Missouri. You know, Thomas says, show me, show me. I, I hear what you guys are saying, but I don't believe it. Show me. Let me see the nail prints in his hands. Let me put my hand in the wound in his side. Show me. We notice that when he returns to the circle of the disciples and actually lays eyes on Jesus, the Lord doesn't so much discount or dismiss his skepticism. Instead, he invites him to probe the wounds for himself, to satisfy his intellectual longing. Well, I think Thomas represents here, if I can put it this way, the theological side of the church's life. The church stubbornly thinks about the faith. It doesn't accept a sort of naive fideism. No, no, from the earliest days, the church has stubbornly thought about Revelation. Justin the Martyr, very early figure, Irenaeus from the second century, John Chrysostom, Augustine, Anselm, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, Duns Scotus, Robert Bellarmine, Ignatius of Loyola, John Henry Newman, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Josef Ratzinger, John Paul II. 
See, in one sense, all these figures are descendants of Thomas. I don't mean they're racked by doubt. I mean, they're all people who questioned, who wondered, who speculated. People who were not satisfied with a faith that didn't seek to understand. Does that make sense? I'm using that classic definition of theology, fides querens intellectum, faith that seeks to understand. Now, if this dimension, this more intellectual, theological, is not tempered by the other two, it will indeed devolve into something bad, namely into a sort of skeptical rationalism. And may I say, I think in the last 50 years, we've seen that. We've seen that. When the intellectual life of the church is divorced from its apostolic and its more contemplative dimension, that indeed happens. I've seen theologians who basically lose the faith. They become skeptical, rationalistic. Here's the final point, everybody. Do you see how the three dimensions need each other? How they balance and complete one another? Without the other two, the apostolic becomes just mere social service. Without the other two, the contemplative can become something superstitious. Without the other two, the theological can become rationalistic. And so it goes in the life of the church. These three apostles, if you want, Peter and John and Thomas, balancing each other in the vibrant life of the church. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.